The radio is dying. WCBN keeps it thriving. Don't sleep on their funky grooves and late night rap beats. 88.3 keeps giving music lovers what we need. From hippies to hip-hop heads, the essence of the city isn't dead. If you listen to the station, you'll receive an alternative education. When you feel like lame tunes have got you in a chokehold, turn on 88.3, giving vocals back to the locals. W to the C, don't forget the B and you better listen to this even when you're taking BMs. They make sure they keep the beats coming. Dial 763 to the 3500. WCBM, FM, Ann Arbor. Afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Paisley Rackdahl here, here in the studio, back again. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be back. Paisley, you are um, not only uh, a poet, an essayist, a uh, hybrid genre uh, maker, experimenter, experimenter, <laughs> yeah. um, a professor at um, the University of Utah, but you're also a former um, host of Living Writers. That's right. WCBN FM. I did this job with a good friend of mine, Todd Spencer. Hopefully he's out there listening in the audience because I know he moved back to Michigan. He was in San Francisco for a while. So shout um, out to Todd. Shout out to to Todd. Todd did this job for years and years and he um, sort of interviewed me for the position because I was so interested in it. So he and I would go back and forth. He would have a Sunday and I would have a Sunday and then he'd have a Sunday. So um, yeah. So the show used to be on Sundays. It used to be on Sundays actually. Yeah. So when I was asked um, if I'd be interested in coming on the show and I said yes so excitedly but I thought isn't it on Sunday and so when I found out it was Wednesday it was even better so oh, well yeah. thank you so much for being game yeah uh, it's great it's and, great being back and when were you DJing what was what was the, the oh the geez years, I guess 94 to 96 that's when I was here as a as a graduate student so you know and of course I was only four years old at the time so you know. oh right <laughs> <laughs> I was a pre- precocious person oh, <laughs> always a prodigy yes always <laughs> Prodigy. Right. And Paisley, before we went on the air, you started to mention, because um, I should say a, a big thank you for everyone. Last week, it was our fundraiser week here at WCBN mm-hmm. um, for people for supporting, uh, calling in, um, being part of the WCBN community. Um, and Paisley, you actually started to have, you were telling me a story and I said, wait, let's just say this. <laughs> Tell me on the air. Well, unfortunately, it's not a great story, but it was um 
at that time, I used to produce shows ahead of time to sort of learn all the different equipment. This is before radio was, of course, digital uh, or digitized to the point it is now. And so I was cutting and splicing the the tape and and making this great hour long fundraising thing. And I didn't I didn't take into account um, the the fact that people call in and offer money. <laughs> and so so at some point, I just had to stop the tape because I realized, oh wow, people are actually calling in. <laughs> and, 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 and you have to say and you have to say and I realized, oh whoops, that was a huge mistake. So. So, you know, bad planning on my part. But I did learn to use the equipment better and stuff. And it was an it was an all Elvis theme hour, which I was very excited about. So, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's um, because when I think of, you know, giving, I think of Elvis. Of Elvis. I of mean, who doesn't? who doesn't think of Elvis? Yeah. <laughs> Top of the list. Every time. Exactly. <laughs> I have something similar, although it's the Rocky theme. Like the oh. eye of the, or the eye of the tiger. Mm-hmm. Sort of. So that kicks off every fundraiser just to I mean, when I think giving and community i think i have the tiger <laughs> it's true no one thinks of carol king in these moments but we think of you know journey maybe you know something something really horrendous but i do love journey i shouldn't say that i do actually like journey i would go see them and i shouldn't really complain i'm going to go see britney spears in vegas so you know i'll see anything oh yeah so is this part of a project or is this no just this a... is because i have no taste <laughs> a guilty pleasure or it's not a guilty so pleasure guilty. well i sort of feel like there are certain performers that you should see um, during your lifetime. I rather like there's, I have a list of poets I want to see before they die. Uh, I'd like to see them read. Um, I've missed a couple, obviously. Who, who are some of the people on your list, Paisley? Um, well, the ones that are living, I still want to, I have not seen, I've never heard Ashbury read in person. So John Ashbury would be like my number one, for instance. Um, right up there with Elvis. Right up there with on Elvis. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've never gotten to hear him read and, and I feel that that's a, a horrible thing. I've never heard um, Carolyn Forche read, actually. I've never, I'd like to see her in person read. I've heard her. Is she's she wonderful? Yeah. yeah, she strikes me as, a, as somebody who'd be a really wonderful performer of her work. Um, I never got to see Inger Christensen, who's a Danish poet, read, obviously, because I don't live in Denmark. And I don't think she ever came to the States to do readings, but that would have been amazing to, to And she's her. gone. And she's gone, right? Um, Seamus Heaney, I never heard him in person, and he's gone. So, yeah, I mean, I guess this is a morbid fan, a sort of a bucket <laughs> list of people. But going back to Britney Spears, I mean, I have a sort of bucket list of... You know, artists that I'd like to see um, that are performing now that that would be sort of a shame, you know, to to not have seen. You know, like if someone said to you, I have tickets to see Fat Elvis in Hawaii, you know, you would take that. Right. And right. and I'm going to go see Chubby Britney Spears, I guess. <laughs> that was really mean. But um, but I'm going to go see Britney Spears, who's not chubby at all. She's, you know perfectly sized but I think she's going to do a great performance and it's in Vegas and how can this not be fun I mean I live pretty close by to Vegas so yeah so it's a road trip it's a road trip it's a road trip with a good friend of mine so oh this is yeah and I bet um, it all becomes grist for the mill, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I just think about, um, of course, you know, Tony Hoagland, um, the poet, right? So he wrote that poem about Britney Spears. And one of my favorite lines ever is where he says, sometimes I look at her and I want to cover her up. And other times I just want to scream, dance, you little whore, dance. <laughs> I don't know. It's not often I'll ever quote a Tony Hoagland poem, but those He's lines of the show. He's it always <laughs> cracks me up, that, that, that moment in that poem. So... Yeah. Well, wonderful. Mm. Well, hopefully, like, you'll be finding your own things to shout, Paisley, yeah. when you're in <laughs> I won't be screaming, dance, you little whore, dance, no. no. Maybe not that. <laughs> you know what? Before we go any further, yeah. usually I'll, I'm just going to read a short biography because we filled in a, a few facts for everyone listening. But um, here's a few more. 
Paisley Rechtal is the author of a book of essays, The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, the hybrid genre photo text memoir, Intimate, and four books of poetry, A Crash of Rhinos, Six Girls Without Pants, The Invention of the Kaleidoscope, and Animal Eye. Um, and we'll be hearing some poems from from maybe, Animal Eye, from Animal Eye mm-hmm. and maybe maybe the other pieces of the other works, too. Her work has received the Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Fellowship, a Village Voice Writers on the Verge Award, an NEA Fellowship, two Pushcart Prizes, the University of Georgia Press's Contemporary Poetry Series Award, a Fulbright Fellowship, inclusion in the Best American Poetry Series, twice, and various State Arts Council Awards. Her most recent book of poems, Animal Eye, was a finalist for the 2013 Kingsley Tufts Prize, the Balcones Prize. Poetry Prize and was the winner of the 2013 UNT Rilke Prize. Her poems and essays have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Virginia Quarterly Review, Tin House, on National Public Radio, among other places. She is the creator and managing editor for Mapping Salt Lake City, a community-written web atlas that maps the various communities and neighborhoods of Salt Lake City through critical and creative literature, interactive maps, and multimedia projects. Paisley, welcome again. Thank you so much. I know that was quite a, that's a lot. Well, <laughs> no, but I actually am very, was very interested in also mm. this, this, that you're the creator and ed- managing editor of Mapping Salt Lake City. Yeah. I definitely wanted to have a chance to talk with you. And about I would love that. to talk about that project. It's sort of, um, it's an, it's a really fun project that's sort of um, taken over my life and the life of two graduate students of mine. So, um, but I can talk about it later. I can talk about it now. Well, I feel like when we were walking towards the station, mm-hmm. um, we, you, we were talking about sort of bemoaning sort of the demise of you know, Shaman Drum going, mm-hmm. we're just going like some of the books out of the the downtown area here. And yeah. I said, literati, there's hope we have in the downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said there's four bookshops in um, Salt Lake City. It, there's even more than that, but uh, four notable ones, ones that would be sort of equivalent to, to Shaman Drum or something um, that, that are sort of cornerstones of the community. We have... Um, uh, Sam Weller's books. We have the King's English, and of course we have Ken Sanders. Um, of course, no one probably knows these names because, but well, hopefully, someone out there is a Utah native yes. or something and would have heard of these bookstores. But um, people people love those bookstores. They run the gamut from antiquarian bookstores to contemporary um, bookstores that are just you know first first run sort of bookstores, um, and and they're they're just institutions people can't imagine living without them uh and And are these on the map they you know the funny thing is we have tried to get them on the map we've gotten um, we're trying to get people to write specifically about these people but a lot of people haven't because they assume that everyone would have written about them so far but we're uh doing an oral history project now to start mapping uh, people, individuals who've really shaped Salt Lake City um, in different ways. And so someone's doing some interviews with Ken Sanders right now. Uh, it's a community-run website, which means that uh, basically I'm sort of an archivist. That's really my role. I don't really write anything. Um, I edit. Uh, I fact-check. I make sure that the material that comes into the site from community members who are interested in creating something for the site. I, I make sure that it gets up. Um, I, I make sure it looks good. Um, and, you know, Mapping Salt Lake City is, is sort of an, a, a bizarre project. It started because uh, I had been reading a book called Infinite City by Rebecca Solnit, which is a wonderful book if anyone has ever read it. Um, 
you would know. It's uh, basically a collection of essays and maps about the different communities that have comprised San Francisco over the years. And the the essays are beautifully written. Um, Rebecca Solnit wrote many herself, but she also farmed out some of the essays to uh, other writers that she knows of, researchers in the area. She wrote a great piece, Detroit Arcadia. Oh, really? I, I believe, I think. Yeah. yeah. She's doing a, a lot of work with cities around the country. She just did one for uh, New Orleans, a sort of infinite city for New Orleans. So a lot of people and a lot of cities out there are thinking this is exactly the kind of project we need to do for our cities. Uh, and when I read it and I looked at the book, I thought, oh, this is so beautiful. This would be a great class to teach, you know, mapping Salt Lake City. But I didn't want to do a book because a book is a static object. It's something that uh, falls into, I think, some of the pits, pitfalls of a place like Salt Lake City where people imagine that there's a, monothe- a monolithic history, uh, one story that overtakes all others. And a published book sort of as a form works into that argument that this is an official mm. kind of history. Mm. And the thing about Salt Lake and the reason I love Salt Lake and the reason I wanted to do this website is that I feel like the West is often ignored or overwritten by outsiders or um, written having a history written for them by a particular band of insiders, which is also sort of an insidious thing. Mm-hmm. What I liked about a website is it really allowed for a conversation potentially to take place, that people could add and change and um, continue to evolve the site as the city itself evolves. Many voices. Many from voices. The community. Right. I mean, if you think about, there's a wonderful book also um, called The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. And I am probably just butchered that title. My my mind is going a bit. But no, well, you, <laughs> you said you're working on Little Sleep and you've just yeah. flown in. So I just we'll flown in, give but, you a break here. <laughs> but uh, so Jane Jacobs was talking about what is a city, what really makes up a city. And she says a, a, a city is really um, a convergence uh, of so many different people, environments. It's not a static place. Mm-hmm. It's not a static idea even. Um, it's, And I like to think of it as a nexus of all sorts of conversations that are continually happening. Which and seems to imply continual movement. Continual like movement. The nexus would be moving exactly. in and through. And, right. Yeah. And the way that people experience place isn't always narrative in ways that you or I imagine narrative, right? Where a narrative poem or a narrative piece of fiction, you know, people have, people create artwork for it. People create music you know, for it. They create multimedia kinds of pieces. People respond by making maps. They think about a city in terms of its history. They think of ter- uh, graphs. So how will you layer that? Or how... So the site, <laughs> if you look at the site, I know it was it, we spent... Um, it was a really fascinating formal challenge because for the semester that I was having my students write pieces, we were trying to figure out where it would go if it's not a book, what that looked like. And then we had to start talking about website architecture and we spend a lot of time looking at different websites. So we have um, one homepage that links to a projects page with a Google map, and on it are all of these tags. You click on a tag, and it takes you to a particular project that's located in a place in Salt Lake City. That sounds... What is the website? So it's called Mapping Salt Lake City, www.mappingslc.org. And I highly recommend people go. So we're going to take a short break. So Mm -hmm. everyone, you can go check it out now. And we'll be back with Paisley (laughs) Rechtal here um, on Living Writers. Um, We've got her books on the table, Animal Eye and more. We'll be right back after this short break.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Paisley Rechtal is here. Um, we've got many of Paisley's books on the table. We've got Animal Eye, um, let's see, out in 2012 with Tupelo Press. Oh, no, that's Pitt. But Intimate came out with Tupelo. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, yes. Okay. no, yes. And I should say, <laughs> forgive me, it's the University of Pittsburgh Press, the the Pitt Poetry Series. And thanks to Maria for sending both Animal Eye mm-hmm. and the invention of the kaleidoscope great titles paisley <laughs> and then we've also got intimate an american family photo album um and this is out with tupelo press and and a thanks to um marie uh there at tupelo mm-hmm. for sending this and the night my mother met bruce lee observations on not fitting in and thanks to Brittany and karina at vintage uh penguin random house Vintage or, Penguin Random House. It's crazy. And that, I shortened it. I just picked three that I felt would cover. I'm sure it's there's Knopf. a German name in there, it's, right? Yeah, yeah I know. It's every, it's, mm-hmm. it's everyone keeps. It's a little scary when you think about the publishing industry in some ways. There are very few independent places. Yeah, almost everyone owns somebody else. Yeah. I always feel bad for fiction writers. I don't know. I shouldn't feel bad for <laughs> fiction writers, honestly. They're making money. But, you know, Right. That was kind of, that's one of a first for living writers. Poets. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just too bad for those fiction writers. They're really the corporate shills of anyone, you know. But yeah. No, I actually think that poetry, that's one of the great things about poetry and poetry presses right now is that um, there's the independent houses and university presses give the big houses a run for their money. In fact, one could make the argument that the, some of the most significant poetry being published today is really coming out of what would be traditionally seen as the independent literary publishing world, which is, I think it's great. Um, and in the spirit of the poems as well, and exactly. in the work as it's sort yeah. of changing and and blurring yeah. lines, boundaries. Exactly. I think I've been a little obsessed with your book, Intimate, an American Family Photo Album. So I think that's why I was <laughs> yeah. rushing through to who to thank. Um, because this, I your titles are, are like, that's just on the surface, a surface thing to say, but are brilliant. And it means, I think, a lot for the books. But this, this... This this project, Intimate, is so interesting in that you're, you've got so, it's a hybrid genre, which mm-hmm. I guess is like, when you were writing it, did you have a sense of this project was going to have a different scope than um, my essays, The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee? Or, it, or, it's, it's a good question, because when I started writing Intimate, which is a series, it started out in a very conventional format, which is I had been looking at the photographs of Edward S. Curtis, and I was so interested in how 
my reaction to them. I thought they were beautiful. Um, and I grew up in Seattle. Curtis's studio was in Seattle. Curtis launched his famous North American Indian project from Seattle, 20 volumes over 20 years, taking photographs of every single tribe west of the Mississippi, which is a politically important note there. Uh, and I'll go into why in a moment. But when I looked at those photos, I thought, wow, it's just so beautiful. How did I how did I miss this? But the photos seemed familiar from growing up in Seattle and seeing images like that around me all the time. In, even in Ivers, you mentioned right. that in the Oh, yeah, the, the first Ivers Chowder. Yes. House. Yes, exactly. A, a Seattle institution. And then um, so I thought, well, I'm just going to read up on him. And when I read up on Curtis and I read about the problems that those images pose that are formal and uh, ethical problems where a lot of the images that he had, I mean, and I do want to backtrack and say Curtis actually had a great love of you know, the American Indian. This was his life's dedication. This was his life's dedication. This is something like he wasn't, he was using his own money. He had whatever. He bankrupted himself. He bankrupted his ex-wife, his, you know, family. The family, yes. Yeah, there's many things that are, and he spent time trying to learn as much as he could. He was self-taught. He taught himself photography. He taught himself as many of the rituals and languages and stories and everything. From your poems, you have Mm -hmm. him building his first camera. Right. In one of the early poems. Yeah, I imagine Imagine that. So there's much that's admirable about him, but it comes with um, a sort of bitter, a series of bitter pills. One is that uh, part of his project is based on the idea of the, you know, Native American is this wonderful relic of the past. And to a certain extent, they have to disappear. Modernity demands that they disappear. For him, there was no sense of the, an American Indian history in the future, or, you know, American history future, you know, American future for um, the American Indian. And and um, that's troubling. And so he spent a lot of time posing his photos, as many listeners might know, in a way that made people seem as if they were you know, centuries older than they actually were. He would take out jeans, he would take out watches, clocks, cars. Um, He would never photograph people on reservations. Uh, He made a very, you know, concerted effort to make it seem as if they were living in... Like in a natural world. Yeah, with this this disappearing, beautiful, untouched, pristine America, but of the past. And even sometimes using the same, sort of if you look at a lot of the photos, some Mm. of the same wraps or shirts or beads what's yeah absolutely he they shared i mean people were wearing um costumes that were not necessarily native to their own tribes and what's interesting i was doing um some work on other there was a oh i forgot his name but there was another um indian agent uh in eastern washington who who was collecting artifacts from a lot of the people he was supposedly serving at the time and curtis approached him and said can i borrow basically your you know collected memorabilia and he had people dress up mm-hmm. in this man's you know basically museum artifacts so there's lots of and you know he would scratch things out of the glass you know negative in order to create a, a, a more seamless vision of um, mm. these people. So, it so comes, a created vision. A created really vision. wasn't a documentary vision, which is what the name, mm-hmm. the volumes, and maybe even, because didn't Teddy Roosevelt, didn't he? Oh, he loved, w- yeah. Wrote, like write the introduction. He did, yes. And for him, I felt like that his, he might have seen it as this documentary mm-hmm. vision rather than Edward as Curtis's. I think that's really true. I mean, Curtis um, sold his project under the aegis of um, 
the documentary, but it never was documentary. And I think that's one of the other things that came up when I was trying to write what was going to just be a series of poems responding to the um, photos. Because <laughs> how did this project yeah, how did this start? Project get, right, <laughs> see, you can't, this is the problem, you know, why did it, why does it turn into this? And it, to a large part, you can't do certain things just in the poems, to, you know, without ending up being really, really didactic. So I thought, well, I'll do poems and an essay. And then I was looking and I was like, oh, something's missing. Something, why am I interested? interested in this? Why am I interested in this? And and it became clear to me after a while that the reason I was interested in this is that my father is a really, um, <laughs> he's a he's a pretty interesting character in many ways. I love him dearly, but... And he's from Norway? And so he's from, he's well, he's from America, but he's oh, Norwegian. He's, oh, yeah, okay. basically. So, um, but his, his ideas about race, his ideas about modernity, his anxiety about um, being a white guy at the turn of the century who, you know, didn't always achieve the things he wanted to in his life. And he's married to my mother, who's a Chinese-American woman who is far more successful financially in some ways, um, far more public than my father. And um, my father was both proud and I think a little chagrined by this. And what was interesting to me is, you know, on the surface, that wouldn't lend itself to thinking about Curtis. But the more you study Curtis's photographs in his life, the more it becomes um, apparent that Curtis was terrified and fascinated by what modern America represented. Curtis himself came from a poor fa- farming background. His father he died um, after he moved them to Seattle, didn't he? Yeah. Pretty early. Pretty, his, his father uh, went, fought in the Civil War, came back with a back injury, never, never recovered, basically um, was terrified that they were all going to end up in the poor house. You know, Curtis picked up photography in part because he thought it was the modern thing to do as a way to, you know, get them out of poverty. Um, and it wasn't <laughs> for Curtis um, at all. But, um, but, but I think his fear of disappearance and seeing his family disappear financially and all these sorts of things. I think when, when I look around America, especially after 9-11, there seems to be such a, a huge amount of white rage. And it comes, a lot of it comes from a lot of white men. And I think part of it is that, and people have been saying this for years, but I think it's really coming to a head now. Opportunities are closing for people. And, you know, people who traditionally might have thought of themselves as having opportunities and maybe even a leg up no longer find that that's possible and so the 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 anxiety around what a new what the future holds um i think creates a tremendous amount of uh, class and racial animosity and my th- my father is sort of to you know he's much smarter than some of the people i'm thinking about but he also was a bit victim to that and i suddenly i thought to tell curtis's story is to tell my father's story and so that's why you have this other um lyrical layer running through mm-hmm. intimate yeah. with your father's story right and it's dangerous because i of course am mixed race but i am not mixed race native american um and so a lot of people would look at this book and say why would you write about something that actually has nothing to do with you which is what's so wonderful about the title right. <laughs> and i congratulate you <laughs> yeah. for subverting this mm-hmm. so why? why why and just so you know I applaud you already. (laughs) So, but now you can tell us why. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, the reason is that I think we tend to assume that certain groups have a racial issue and it's only theirs. There are definitely aspects of Native American history that is really only 
their history. But this anxiety about modernity and the question of identity for people who are mixed race, where do they belong? That's a question that comes up over and over and over for so many different groups. You see that in African-American literary traditions from Nella Larson on up to Caucasia. You see it in Sherman Alexie's work. What, how, do you, how do you classify the urban Indian? How do you classify the mixed race person? You see it in Asian-American literature. Where do you put you know, the mixed race individual? So to a certain extent, um, this is a question that is shared across lines, which is when we live in a country that wants you to be one thing or the other and literally cannot see the in-betweens or refuses to see the in-betweens. And the in-betweens is a place where I think most of us live, whether we are literally mixed, you know, in terms of our bloodline or our classes, you know, or whatever. We are almost all mixed or hybridized in some way. And when we live in a culture that insists on a, a singular identity, then we all suffer. And I think that's where I wanted to write this book, which is I don't want to appropriate, though I, I could easily be, you know, charged with appropriation, but I do think um, this is really a story about asking that question over and over, where do people fit when they are not allowed to be seen, when they are told that they are disappearing in a culture? That is a great vision to have had and to have created this book with Paisley. This, well, thank you. <laughs> and this idea of an, an American family photo album, it's inclusive. Well, that's why I wanted the word American in there, because I think um, Curtis, is, as Curtis could not extricate himself from how he saw the people he was photographing. His vision was American. His anxieties were American in the ways that I think my family's anxieties are not. It's not a mixed race family's anxieties. It's an American family's anxieties. These are American issues. And um, I think it actually strengthens rather than weakens uh, those bonds to, to to sort of see across groups at times. Uh, that that said, I was though I did this something in this book that I thought, oh, whatever happens, I will not do this, and I did it. Um, which was I um, talked. To, this is a dual bi, well, a triple biography. It's a biography of Edward Curtis. It's a biography of my father, but it's also a biography of Alexander Upshaw, who was a real man who was a crow guide. Um, from Montana, who was raised uh, in the Carlisle Indian School. He was given the full line about assimilation. Um, it's better to be, you know, an American citizen, which is interesting because, of course, he was always an American citizen. But the idea was that just because you're a Native American doesn't mean you're an American right, citizen. You have to choose somehow you, and to you have put some to, layers onto yourself. Exactly. You have to, you know, become a Christian. You have to speak English. Speak you have American. to wear certain types of clothing and you have to enter a middle class lifestyle. So um, I wrote about him and his perspective. And I was nervous about that. Let's take a short break. Okay. Um, Paisley Rechtal is here uh, today. Her book's Animal Eye. We've been also talking about Intimate, an American family photo album. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today, former DJ <laughs> Paisley Rectal is here in the studio um, with her books. And we've been talking about Intimate, an American family photo album. Um, and Paisley, I have a quick question because mm-hmm. I would love to hear something from the book um, out with Tupelo Press. Um, but did you, when you were here, did you ever go to the West Side Bookshop down on Liberty across from Old Town? Um, I don't think so. Uh, no. Jay has owned this. You'll have to go while you're here. Okay. Um, Jay, friend of the show, has, owns this West Side Bookshop. And Doug Price has a many, many Edward S. Curtis prints mm-hmm. in the in the very back room and oh, some in wow. the front window you can see with um, some old typewriters. Oh, I will definitely but look. It's a place you need to go while oh, you're yeah. here. <laughs> I'll absolutely go. And Thanks. if you ever have like a satellite map from mapping Salt Lake City, if you have a satellite <laughs> one that reaches out our way, please put West Side Bookshop on it. <laughs> absolutely. I will. So I'll read a poem from Intimate. Uh, like... As we were talking about before, it's a hybrid book. It's got sort of three biographies uh, wrapped around an essay thinking about Curtis's uh, life, basically. With beautiful images. With images, you know, so you'll see images that um, he took, but then images that other photographers at the time, same time period, took of um, different tribes How as well. How did you choose to do that, Paisley? And one of your family you, your and mom, one, and dad, yes. and yeah. one of my family, which is interesting. You were a baby. <laughs> yeah, when I was a baby. Um, what I wanted to do was to show that um, the ways that Curtis was um, photographing these people was ahistorical or anachronistic even at the time he was doing it. And I wanted to show the difference between his vision of the documentary and maybe a, an actual documentary photographer's vision. But this is um, almost all the, po- well, actually every poem in the book corresponds to a uh, Edward S. Curtis photograph. And um, so this is a poem called Good Lance, Oglala. Here's where the light burns brightest, ghostly furs that crowns a headdress, a burst of cold chromatics echoing on feathers, vest, striped staff, the very tinting of cheek and lip curve, nose like a radiance of spattered ice. So white, we almost have to squint to take him in, to see the pattern of his self appear. Here, where carefully articulated kinks in the fingers mimic the tunic's hyphenated stripes, pale bead blocks that joint the half-bent arms and thighs, flesh made less solid by shadow, so all that exists seems pure bone, the outline of a man stuffed in his plumage, snowy relic of a last good suit now donned for show. To survive in this photo is to remain all surface, the costume of one's blanched imprisonment. His mouth is pursed. His eyes are closed. For him, to die is a present act with no possible ending. Going, 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 going. Even alive, he's history. So... A couple of things. I mean, obviously, that gets to the heart of some of our discussion about disappearance. And one of the things that I found really refreshing about some of the research I was doing for this book uh, was actually going to the American Indian Museum in Washington, D.C. And in fact, you go in there and there's almost nothing on the walls. And the reason they the reason is they said 
they don't want to show pictures of people in the past because that's the way people already imagine, you know, Native Americans. They're in the past, you know, even alive, their history. And they're like, if you want to see what this is like, we're going to show you pictures of people who are alive right now doing work. And um, it was really it was really nice to see people working against that idea of that predominant narrative of you, you, you don't exist. But if you do exist, you have to be in a sepia toned very beautiful headdress, um, a, a full portrait of you, you know, blurred out, <laughs> looking like you probably are from two or three centuries past. This makes me feel like there could be another project here where, um, you know, how people do homages to like Ed- Edward Rouchet's, you know, 26 gasoline stations or something. Mm-hmm. So someone could, um, if if people thought it was worth while is to have people in some of uh, now Paisley you're gonna say no T this is the absolute this is exactly what I'm talking about against um like to put people where they actually are like people who are alive from present day tribes and maybe have like some of these tokens of the uh like the headdress or something mm-hmm. that you wrote so beautifully about in these beads and have them somewhere where it's real. Well, there is actually a woman who's doing that. It's a woman from Seattle. Oh. Um, yeah, and I can't remember her name. She's a Native American woman, and right. she is, in fact, I gave, I, why I can't remember her name because I gave to her Kickstarter account. It really kills me. Oh, but brilliant. She <laughs> is she is redoing Curtis's uh journey basically she's taking pictures of every tribe that she can get to and so uh, the amount of money that people donate to her she's she's going out there and she's she's going to photograph people as they want to be photographed ah, okay. um, and and she's not going to try to to change you know the appearance mm. you know but I, I want to say two things when I said before that Curtis photographed every tribe west of the Mississippi. There was right. there's a reason for that. And one of the reasons is that um, west of the Mississippi was, again, feeding into that idea of where American Indians are. But also um, there was much less intermixing of those tribes with the white white and non-white populations surrounding them, which is not the case for the tribes east of the Mississippi because of population density um, in large part and also because there was a you know just a tremendous amount of intermixing there were um also it was harder to determine sometimes where these people were and if they were even considered Native American anymore. So, for instance, the government um, often, I shouldn't say often, but in a couple of famous instances, declared certain tribes white suddenly uh, because they wanted those lands. And they didn't want the, you know, so the tribal rights no longer existed if they're no longer considered Native American, uh, right? It's a, what? Yeah. It's uh, so people. messed up, right? Yeah. Like, what is this? I know. This is like, the, uh. But, but you know, because of that reason, so there's there's a number of reasons why he chose west of the Mississippi. But I I, I think this artist, this woman, is um, going to try to do all of the tribes, which is, I mean, that's a life's work. I mean, yes. that's a tremendous amount of work. And I will say one last thing, which is, and again, goes back to the complexity around Curtis as a figure, for me at least, which is as much as he drives me crazy, and he was an egomaniac, and he was really quite terrible to the people that he worked with, um, in some ways, he also had a tremendous respect for the people he was photographing. A lot of them had very close relationships with him. He was um, very good friends um, 
with some of the the tribal leaders at the time. And um, there were tribes that actually wrote to him asking him to come and take photographs of them. But of course, you, you can see why that is, because here's somebody who looks like he's interested in preserving culture. You yourself are interested in preserving culture. At some point, your interests intersect. And then at some point, they are going to, diver- to, di- to diverge, right? There's a, there's a way I see these photographs working, though, where because he puts on these things that you start to recognize. So you see mm-hmm. that there are things that he's putting on the the people themselves. I think as a viewer, at least for me, I started to disregard them and look at the faces yeah. of the people more and the expressions yeah. that somehow he was able to capture. Yeah. But I think it's it, like, I think you still have to acknowledge what these other parts of it are, are exactly. but, but to also maybe see, maybe that's part of the beauty that... Mm-hmm makes them lasting or hopefully there was some good to this oh for sure i mean i i mean if i accuse i guess curtis of having a black and white vision in which a certain type of future cannot visually exist i can't also turn that vision around to curtis and say he can only be good or bad i mean there's it is a mixed project um and in fact if you look at the 20 volume set of the north american indian it itself have you yes well i'm not not in this entirety but i've looked at you know a a volume here or there in in terms of the libraries that have them but it's it is a hybrid genre i mean it it collects poems and stories uh personal you know recollections history photographs it is you know to for me to write a hybrid genre we tend to think of the hybrid book as something that's very 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 20th century late 20th century (laughs) you know it's just happening right now we are so awesome but it's been done for forever and you know curtis is certainly one of the most visual examples of that and he was doing this in you know 1910 to 1940 you know so this is nothing new and and why do we need all these categories? Right, exactly. We you know well for marketing purposes on one level, and also uh. just for your sanity in another. Because I I realized working across genres for one book, just how hard it was to th- to switch gears. I mean, each one demands a different type of thought, and it demands a different type of understanding of how the audience is willing to think when they receive it. So a poem does convey certain types of information that uh, you know prose isn't, and prose can't, and vice versa. And and so for intimate, you were mm-hmm. you had to be switching uh, all the time, and, and you're asking the the reader who's experiencing it mm-hmm. to switch to switch, and also um, to think about how we read photographs. I mean, photos are narrative pieces of narrative as well. And sometimes there's work that is done, I think, by the photos in this collection, photos I did not take, but because of their placement, now they do narrative work that I don't have to do, which I found really exciting. Um, and in that sense, I was very influenced by, you know, W.G. Sebald, who does a lot of work with that, obviously, like Austerlitz, the immigrants, you know, um, uh, rings of Saturn and stuff. And so the ways he uses um, the signage that is a photo, I think is is really quite brilliant, and I tried to, to to learn from that and incorporate that with my work. There's so many things to talk about, Paisley. We're going to take a short break, okay, and we'll be thanks. right back. Paisley Rectal is here. Uh, Animal Eye, the invention of the kaleidoscope, intimate and American family photo album. Oh, before we go to break, um, you can go and hear Paisley tomorrow at UMA, 5 o'clock um, at the Helmut Stern Auditorium. You'll be reading poems from Animal Eye, Paisley? And uh, a lot of new poems, my Mae West sonnets. <gasps> In the Mae West sonnets. Wonderful. Yeah, Maybe we nice. can hear one when we come right back.
If you're just joining us, I'm glad you did. Today, Paisley Rectal is here on the program. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. Um, Paisley, I'm so glad you're part of the Zell Visiting Writers series. Well, I'm honored. Yeah. <laughs> it bring, brings you here and a, sort of a homecoming back to WCBN as well. Yeah. Um, I'm just so honored to be asked, actually. It's always, you know, it's always so flattering to have, you know, your alma mater, alma mater you know, ask you to come back. And so I just never thought that would happen. So well, I'm really, really, I'm really delighted. Well, so. hopefully it'll be a regular thing. <laughs> And then you can come back and you can do a, a guest uh, living writers episode. <laughs> I would love that. I, w- I always miss radio, actually. I just you do. I, yeah. I do. I, that was where I thought I was going to end up. In fact, I was trying to uh, make my way into the radio world, and I never thought I would end up teaching. And here I am uh, teaching <laughs> and not on radio at all, except, you know, when I'm interviewed. So it's, it's a delight and, and a treat to, to do something like this. Oh well, well. Thanks for for coming on a Wednesday to be here for the live show. Um, okay, and so everyone listening, also uh, uh, Paisley will be reading tomorrow at the art museum, five ten p.m. in the Helmut Stern Auditorium, um, and reading from Animal Eye and also some of the new Mae West poems. So you'll have to go to hear the Mae West poems. Go there tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're also doing a talk on Friday morning at about 10 in the Hopwood Room in Angel Hall. Is that right? I Paisley? am. It's going to be a joint talk um, with uh, Tupelo Press's editors, Jim Schley and Jeffrey Levine, and then uh, Ahmad Jamal um, Johnson, who uh, I have just recently read his book, Darktown Follies, which is, and the reason I, I picked that book up was because I'm working on these Mae West sonnets and um, I wrote a couple of poems about W.C. Fields and I was thinking about vaudeville myself and um, I did touch a little tiny bit on race but mostly I dealt with issues of gender and so when it's saw Doctown Follies which is all about vaudeville and um, African American performers I was just so excited I was like oh great you I'll know have to read that. it's yeah. a wonderful book yeah I hope I hope everyone gets it yeah it's a good book well we've been promising um, something from Animal so would you yeah. mind reading uh, uh, picking a... Yeah, I'll... Um, 
And you started to sort of answer a question that I was having, because how how do you know that Animal Eye, when you were making this project, Paisley, wasn't something that then would become something like a hybrid, like something that needed something, out, like how, right? Because it almost seems like once you open that, like what's missing? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually do see this as a hybrid project because I was writing this uh, alongside of Intimate. And actually the issues of perception run through both books so much. And I'll read, um, I can read probably two poems, one two short poems, but both of them, the whole book is all about uh, the way in which we imagine things, but also the way in which we use um, the natural and animal world to sort of filter our perceptions of ourselves and 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 other people in the world too. But this is a poem about storytelling, and um, I'll just leave it at that. It's called Voyeurs. A horse falls on a girl in its trailer. The horse is a thoroughbred lame with founder, the girl a girl. You can't imagine the pain. You can't, because this story isn't yours, isn't that of the woman telling it either. You watch her take the basket of bread, tear it, slice by broken slice. When the horse slips in the moving trailer, it pins the girl by her torso to the floor. The woman smiles. If he tries to rise, she says, his shoulder will push downward to her spine. The dull thud of the heart beats against her chest. She orders another glass of wine. You can see the girl's damp fingers stroke the silken neck. You can't imagine why the woman looks at you and smiles. The horse will grind its full weight into her. In the light, your thin sleeves sway like flame. An image of the time he grabbed your wrist, twisted till you cried that he would break it. The woman takes the smallest sip of wine. Her face is flushed. A lock of hair is caught inside your mouth. One quick twist of shoulder. Another glass of wine. Voices sweep the metal, echo through the trailer. What to say of the dim shapes moving in the dark? Straw rustles. The breath grows shallower. You watch the damp face twist. The hands reach out to tear another broken slice. So one of the things I wanted to accomplish, I guess, in that poem or explore is the way in which sometimes there's a violence that occurs in the act of both telling and hearing a story of someone else's trauma, um, how we involve ourselves in that, how, um, how sometimes when you don't have the ending to a particular story, any one story, um, it, it's sort of <laughs> this, this terrible 
not traumatic event, but it, 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 it drives me kind of personally crazy. And then the ways that all of these stories start to blend together. And so that one perception leads into another perception, leads into another perception. And none of the stories ever gets finished completely. One trauma leads to another trauma, but none of them ever end up getting resolved in any one way. And narrative itself doesn't resolve trauma. The telling of a story, the telling of a, uh, of a, of a painful event doesn't ever ease or, or erase that. Because if it's the same with life, then mm-hmm. there's always then the next day yeah. or the next hour yeah. or so. And then all it does is make you feel like you're a voyeur to your own telling or sometimes a voyeur to somebody else's telling of a trauma. That's like part of the, the rub of being a human being, isn't mm-hmm. it? That where we're like telling, we tell stories or like to make meaning, to understand. Yeah. But in the effort to do that, to, to discover, to understand, we change it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that as writers, one of the fascinating things about what we do is you write something or you read something <laughs> as an act of imaginative empathy. And and it feels good at the time, but it also always falls short. It never fully works. I mean, I feel like E.M. Forrester, right? Where all of his novels are all about, oh, just connect, just connect. And yet, all of his novels revolve around the impossibility of that connection. People people make the gesture of it all the time, and it always goes somewhat awry. And I think that that's kind of the vision that I was working with, I think, in both these books, Intimate. You know, Curtis used to say, he used to call himself um, the Native Americans intimate. I'm intimate with the tribes. They're, you know, I'm their intimate. Um, and poetry itself is this gesture of intimacy, which gives and takes away simultaneously. And I, um, and I, I'm, I'm always like, fascinated so? with that. Well, I mean, you, especially the kind of tr- poems I'm writing, which fall into a narrative lyric tradition, which often is about the self speaking to the self in a moment of, of heightened emotional crisis, but it's supposed to be, um, understood as, as, as a very personal moment that can be translated to someone else's experience. So the gesture is one of, like I said, imaginative empathy. Um, and yet there's something incredibly solipsistic, not just about narrative lyric poetry, but the act of you know, writing poetry as a whole, which is that this contained moment of, um, of crisis, emotional crisis or ecstasy or questioning, uh, the beginning and end that, that suggests a resolution that, that, that to a certain extent offers a kind of false resolution. I often feel very satisfied after reading a poem, but then you have to sit back and think, yeah, but what really changed? Nothing. <laughs> um, so I guess my very practical nature um, gets very upset about this. It's sort of like, how how is it that I can feel something has been resolved? How is it that I can feel a purpose to my life or feel something deeply inside me and then it's gone five minutes later and then it doesn't leave a permanent mark? It doesn't do what it purports to do. Um, and and I think to a certain extent, it doesn't, you know, a, a great piece of art isn't going to change the world, doesn't have to do that, but it makes you feel as if that's what's happening. And I think that that, that frustration sometimes comes out in me. And so Voyeurs is, is a poem that starts to address that a little bit, at least on my end. <laughs> so, so should we just not be writing them? Oh, no. <laughs> no, that's impossible, right? You have to do it. That's the, that's, that's the paradox. If you don't do it, you're in a much worse position than if you did do it. So, I mean, obviously you have to do it. Obviously you have to do it. So we shouldn't be reading them, Paisley. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you write poetry anyway, because no one's reading it. That's why I love poetry. I mean, I, I think it's so funny when people get upset, you know, oh, poetry's no longer a bestseller. It doesn't make any, no one wants to read poetry. But I don't think I would write if I felt people were reading me. <laughs> no, I think there's only certain things I can say in poetry because I feel like it's the most, it's the perfect world. It's incredibly private and you can say and be as public as you want. And the, I mean, I think it's, I think it's delusion on my part because obviously at some point someone I know and love will pick up the poem and read it and then then be very upset <laughs> that that was my retelling or or really delighted by it um but I guess I like the privacy that literature gives me um I know other people are really upset about that because it it suggests that it's not economically viable it's not politically important anymore I don't think that's necessarily true but I do like the idea that you can be both secret and public at the very same moment. Yeah, that's wonderful. That is lovely. And and you're also an essayist. And in a way, like that's, you know, you talk about the project that you did when you tried to read five books of poetry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think that's on the Poetry Foundation website. Yeah, and yeah. So I wish we had time to talk about it. Or the essays that you wrote the night my mother met Bruce Lee, Observations on Not Fitting In. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wrote about race. Um, I write about race more explicitly in um, in prose form because I feel like some of those complexities, I want to be sure, some of the worst writing uh, about race is often very obscure and very difficult writing and, and people that are being deliberately vague, which can also lead to, to accidentally or deliberately racist writing. And so um, one thing I, I want to make sure about, it's a political decision in a way to write about race in, in prose. I feel like people are, are less likely to to get things wrong. <laughs> I, I can be extraordinarily clear and extremely direct in ways that in a poem, um, the ambiguity, the helpful ambiguities of poetry might not actually work the, in my favor. Or the, some favor. of the mystery. Yeah, some of the not. mystery might not work. Yeah. Well, Paisley, we'll just have to talk again well, at some point, please. <laughs> I'd love <laughs> to. More, more to talk about. If we look at the books on the table, and then you have this upcoming project, your Mae West sonnets will be mm-hmm. something for people to look out for soon. Yeah. Um, tomorrow, the reading at UMA, mm-hmm. uh, 5.10 p.m., and the talk at um, 10 a.m. on Friday yeah. in Angel Hall. Um, Paisley Rechtal, thank you so much for being on Living Writers today. Thank you. Thank and, you. Um, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to the Liz for engineering. And and our studio audience. (laughs) I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Everybody was kung fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought with
Over to Hardaway and up to Trey Burke and LUP. 